We're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. Like Pastor Ben said, if you have a Bible or device, you can open up there and get ready. Uh, We are in this book, Revelation. If you haven't been with us, it's a fancy word, but it literally means unveiling. It, It sounds more cryptic than it actually is. It just means there were things that were hidden, and now God is making those things known. He is unveiling new truth to people, and so he does this in the book of Revelation. It is Revelation. It is not revelations. It is a single revelation of God for his people. Chapter 1, he begins to uh, show himself. Jesus shows himself to John, the human author of this book, in a new way, in his glorified state. He gets to see Jesus in his full glory. And so he sees things like eyes of fire and a sword coming to his mouth, and a lot of them are symbolic, but we see the power of Jesus. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we see these seven letters that are written to specific churches in Asia Minor at that time. We have spent the last seven weeks going through those letters one by one, and some people are like, man, there's a lot of letters. There is, but we made it through. We made it through those letters And we're going to go beyond the letters today to chapter 4. And chapter 4 starts a new section of Revelation that is actually going to run through the rest of the book. You might remember, or maybe not, all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, the book itself gives us a three-part breakdown for what the whole book is going to have. It tells us in Revelation 1.19, Write therefore... The things that you have seen, those that are, and those that will take place after this. And so right in the very first chapter, it's the things that you have seen, right? That, that Jesus is in his fully glorified state. He's seeing that for the first time. And then chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are currently happening at that time. The seven churches telling them what they need to do, how they need to adjust. And so then he says, the things that are going to take place after this. And so now we begin that section that is the after this. This meaning the time in which John is writing the book of Revelation. So almost everything that we read from this point on, from 4 to 22, are things that are going to take place in the future, in the after this. I don't know if you're like me, I love to watch previews of movies. I will go to the movie theater and I will sit down with my candy and my soda early so that I can watch the previews. Especially if they're like some nerd movie, like a Marvel movie, and I'm going to get real excited about it, and I might hoot and holler and be that person. But I love to watch those previews because it's giving me a taste of what is to come. And this is what we have here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It is a preview of heaven. John gets the amazing opportunity to have a preview of the throne room of God, and he gets invited into the throne room. That's amazing. Can you imagine being that person who is allowed to have a preview of what heaven is going to look like? Here in chapter 4, the venue of John's vision changes. Right? He was with Jesus, and then Jesus is telling him uh, what to write to the churches, but then his location in the vision changes, and we're going to get to that. But first I want to say this, just so we kind of on the same page. This 
preview of the throne room of heaven, I believe is mostly symbolic. Okay? Because it talks about the throne room of heaven. But later in Revelation, all the way in chapter 21, spoiler alert, it tells us there is not actually a temple in heaven. That God himself is the temple in heaven. And so all of these things that we're going to talk about today are symbolic because God is trying to help John and us understand some bigger truths about heaven in a way that we can understand it. And so he says, imagine a throne room, right? And so we're going to talk about these things, but they are representative of bigger things. So let's start today. Just the first two verses that start of Revelation chapter 4. Would you read with me? After this, wait. After this. Remember what he said? The things that are going to take place after this. So Revelation 4.1 starts out with after this. So this shows us for sure. We are in the after this. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So notice that right in the beginning, after this, we know that's where we're at now. And then there's this door. John says, I see a door, and it's standing open in heaven. Now this is interesting. If you were with us last week, do you remember we were just talking about Jesus standing at a door, knocking trying to come in, and we talked about this, the scary truth is that he's talking to the church. And he's saying, I'm standing outside at the door and I'm knocking, let me in. All right? So now it switches, now he's talking about a door that is open to heaven, and he's inviting John into his door. So we start thinking about, okay, so if you see a door open into heaven, what does that look like? What is, what is heaven? Right? This is one of the things we kind of skip over as we read through Revelation, but if you saw a door open and you're like, heaven's on the other side of that door, what do you imagine is on the other side of that door? Where it says, come up. Is heaven up? Is heaven just like beyond the solar system somewhere? Because there, there actually were some people back when we went into space and we begin to explore our universe. There were people that believed that once they got to heaven and they didn't find, once they got to space and they didn't find heaven, they said, well, see, that proves it. Heaven's not real. Because they thought that heaven was literally just really far up there. Just like we pray, we might look up, right? But heaven was never a physical location in our universe. Heaven is what Warren Wearsby calls God's sphere of reality right here, close beside us. And so that's one of the things I think as we go through Revelation, we need to understand heaven is not just like another planet. Heaven is a completely different reality that is a very real place, but it does not exist in this physical reality. It might be right next to us, and we can't see it. And so maybe the door opens and, and John's just literally taking like one step up and he's still, he's still there, but now he's in the presence of God. 
And this is really important for us to like understand because we, we say things like, oh, one day we'll, we'll be up there in heaven. Well, what does that mean? And our kids, they're like, okay, so wait, how high up do I have to go? Right? But it's beyond that. Or we say things like, oh, someone's smiling down on us. And that's a whole other thing I'm not even going to get into right now. But, but that's a whole other. It, so it's not down. It's not up. It is a completely different plane of existence. And John gets to be a part of that for a moment. What an amazing blessing that would be. So he gets to experience that. He's inviting him in to something that is beyond our material universe. And John says there's a voice like a trumpet that calls him. This is the same voice of Christ that he heard in chapter 1. And the voice says to John, come up here. Which is interesting because we just saw it. It's not up, but he says, come up here. And those words might sound fairly innocuous to us. Come up here. But boy, they're not. There has been theological rumblings of what that means and what that represents for generations and generations because many scholars connect those words come up here to the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 which says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet their Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. They make this connection to the idea of coming up with the words that are in Thessalonians that talk about being caught up. And this is the idea of the rapture of the church, which I believe is the reality. I believe that we will be raptured. I believe Revelation teaches that. I don't know at what point that is going to take place. But many people look at this verse and they say, see, right there, when John is asked to come up, that is the rapture of the church. I don't know that. It's an interesting idea. Maybe that is what it means. But this whole idea is an amazing thing. That he is invited to come up. That the door of heaven is open. And then there's this, this truth that we're going to read about more later in Revelation that Jesus calls us to come up into the clouds and He will come and He will take His bride out of this world of brokenness and pain and He will bring them away from the world where wrath of God is going to pour down and we will be saved. We're going to get more into this. It's very exciting stuff. But I just wanted you to see right here in Revelation 4, this is the idea. Okay, what does it mean to come up? And then John is there. He says in that moment he is in the spirit and he's transported into heaven. And I want you to see the very first thing that he notices. If you were going to go to heaven right now, you probably imagine all kinds of things that would just blow your mind. But the very first thing that he notices and the very first thing that he fixates on is the throne. It's the throne of God. It's not, we're going to get to like, there's crazy looking creatures there. Who knows what's happening ever here and around them. But the very first thing that he notices and fixates on is the throne of God. And this entire section is going to revolve around the throne. It talks about the throne of God 14 times in just this chapter and over 40 times in the book of Revelation. Because the only thing that 
John can really explain about God is the throne. He can't put words to like God. He's far beyond him. And so he sees this throne that represents God and he begins to explain that. It's the centerpiece of his entire explanation here. Because he can't give words to what God looks like, right? The Bible tells us that God is spirit. It tells us that He is light. There's this great verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So this is this idea. If you look up, if you go to Google and try to look up pictures of Revelation 4, you'll see all these. They, they try to depict these things, but in the middle is the throne of God, and usually it's just bright light because there's, there's no other way to like grasp onto it. John tries in verse 3, he tries to give just a tiny bit of explanation of the one who sits upon the throne, and he says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, or Sardius, your Bible might say, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The only way that he can even begin to start talking about God is, he's like, can you imagine like brilliant light shining through beautiful gemstones? Like that's the only thing he can even say to try to grasp onto this. And scholars tell us that that, that Jasper gem is most likely what we now call a diamond. And the carnelian is, is uh, a ruby. These were also, interestingly, if you remember all the way back when we were going through the book of Judges, remember we talked about the breastplate that the high priest would wear. And there were 12 stones on that breastplate. And the first stone was the jasper, and the last stone was the carnelian. It's the fullness of God, Old Testament, New Testament. And he's sitting there on his throne, and there is a rainbow all the way around it that looks like an emerald, like you imagine trying to explain these things if you're just a human being? He's trying to explain what he's seeing. <clears throat> and the rainbow reminds us of the promises that God made to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. That he would not again flood the earth and destroy all of flesh. And so right here in this moment, we have this really cool kind of dualism where the throne of God represents the judgment of God. It is the ultimate picture of the judgment of God, but around the throne is this rainbow that represents the mercy of God. And so God's throne is both a throne of judgment and mercy, and those work together because He is perfect. And in this brief description of the throne of God, we see He is the same God of Israel that they have worshipped for thousands of years. He's the same God moving into the distant future, and He does not change. He does not break His promises. He is still the same God that we know and love. And for a church like the ones in Revelation that are facing struggle, facing persecution, facing difficult times, those are important words for them to hear. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And for a church today like us who are in a world that seems very up in the air and kind of scary sometimes, these are very important words for us to hear that God is sovereign and good and sits upon a throne of both judgment and mercy and He is in control of this world. 
Kids are having fun. In verses 4 through 6, John begins to describe what is around the throne. And notice, all of it is about the throne. He describes the throne, and he says, and then around the throne, and in front of the throne, and above the throne. Like, it's all about God. Around the throne, verse 4, were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So around the throne, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, there's this throne, and then around the throne are 24 more lesser thrones. And upon those thrones are these elders, and they're wearing white garments, and they have golden crowns on their head. And there have been all sorts of attempts to explain exactly who these elders are. The truth is we don't know. We don't know, but somehow they symbolize humanity. One of the theories that's thrown out a lot, and I think it holds some value, is that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ. Right? It's the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament together, all of humanity revolving around God. And so these are the elders, and they have their white garments, which they can only get from Jesus because he washes them clean in righteousness. He gives them that gift upon the cross. So they have their white garments that come from Jesus, and they have their crowns, which tells us if you are an overcomer, you will receive a crown of life. Right? So imagine how beautiful that is. God is there, surrounded by these people that, that represent all of his people, all of his church, all through time. And they're robed in righteousness, and they have the crown of glory. And then from the throne in the middle, there is flashes of lightning and thunder. And again, this reminds us that judgment is coming. Right? The throne is almost alive with power because the judgment is coming and yet the people of God are peacefully around the throne. And that picture of a throne with lightning and thunder, it's reminiscent of a story from Exodus where Moses is going up Mount Sinai and he's bringing the people of God to God for judgment and there is lightning and thunder and smoke surrounding the mountain. The power of God is almost bursting through creation. And we see this in the throne room of God taking place. And before the throne are the seven torches of fire representing the completeness of the Holy Spirit and a sea of glass like crystal. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I imagine in my head it just means like the throne room of God is so amazing that even the ground is cool. Even just the floor is like, that's beautiful. Everything is just breathtaking in the throne of God. And in verse 6b through 11, we read the rest of what is around. And this is when it gets really interesting. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created." So now we begin to get into this part of Revelation that has some things that are real hard for us to imagine in our, in our imagination. But imagine if, if you existed in heaven and this was just a, a normal thing. Like I think about that all the time. Do you ever think about like some of the animals that actually exist sound crazier to me than animals that, that are imaginary? Like a unicorn doesn't sound that weird to me, but a giraffe sounds crazy to me if those things didn't exist. But imagine you're in heaven and these are things that are just a part of heaven. They're not weird. They're not beyond imagination. They just are. And this is what we have. We have these creatures, these heavenly beings. And it describes them as having many eyes, both in front and behind. And, and then they, there's a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. They seem to represent all of God's creation. So you have mankind, you have the wild animals like the lions, you have the domesticated animals like the ox, you have the birds of the air, the, the king of which being the eagle. Right, so all of creation is here. And then if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, there's these crazy connections between these creatures and some creatures that Ezekiel talks about in chapter 1. These cherubim, he calls them cherubim, which means they're a class of angel. And when he explains them, they sound very similar, except for each one has four faces. The lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. And so maybe these are slightly different versions of the same thing, or maybe John from his doorway could only see one face of each one. I don't know. But it's pretty crazy, because thousands of years apart, Ezekiel and John explained these crazy images as these cherubim creatures in heaven. And then there's another verse in the Old Testament where Isaiah talks about seraphim that have six wings. And they also declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so maybe Isaiah also sees these things. And throughout the history, throughout all of these apocalyptic writings, God is showing us these little previews of these heavenly beings. And they serve a bunch of purposes. The cherubim serve a bunch of purposes in the Bible. God tells us that he put a cherubim in front of the Garden of Eden after mankind was kicked out. There's a bunch of things like that. But in this story, it seems to be that these cherubim, these creatures, are the worship leaders in heaven. They are the ones that cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they worship God, then the elders fall down from their thrones and they begin to worship God and they cast off their crowns. And I really love that line. It's almost like a, we don't pay attention to it, but that line where it says that the elders, representing humanity, cast their crowns off to God is a beautiful line to me because there are all these crowns that the Bible talks about that we can receive in this life. The crown of life, the crown of victory and 
righteousness and, and uh, life, all these things. And, and, but when I think about heaven, I don't think there's going to be this caste system where Billy Graham is walking around with his five crowns and then I have one crown. And I'm like, I'm just glad I'm here. Like, I don't think that's how it's going to work. And this story tells us that these people, once they are, like, they earned their crowns. That's amazing. But once they are in the presence of God, they bow down and worship and they throw their crowns down at the feet of God and just say, I'm just glad I'm here. I don't care if I had five crowns. They're your crowns because every blessing comes from God and every blessing is going to go back to God. That is so beautiful to me because it just, it just seems, like, it seems like what should be. Everything that we could possibly earn, we still just say, no God, it is yours and I, I throw it down at your feet. And so they worship together with the creatures and the elders and together they declare this other hymn of worship Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I also think it's interesting. I don't think I'm reading too far into this, but, but it's an interesting thing. is We watch the creatures who represent creation worship God first. And once they worship God the people worship God. This is an interesting thing because as you look through all of human history, we have a propensity, and this has not changed in southwest Montana in 2022, we have a propensity to worship creation rather than the one who created it. And so we see these creatures who represent all of God's creation. You can even look into human history and you can literally see people worshiping ox heads and lion heads and eagles and other men. They're literal figures of worship. And yet all of those figures bow down at the feet of the throne of God. And then once the people see creation worshiping God, they then realize, oh, we need to bow down and worship God and throw down our crowns. Because creation was never meant to be worshipped. The one who made it is the one who is worthy of that honor. We see this all the time. This is not even hidden in our world. People tell me all the time, especially in Montana, oh, I, just go out, I just go out in the trees and I just, I just worship nature. Nature did not create nature. There is no mother nature. Sorry. There is Father God. <laughs> He created it. He is the one that is worthy of it. So everything bows down to Him. And His holiness, don't miss this, His holiness becomes the center theme of the worship. It's an interesting thing about holiness is God many times in the Bible is called holy, holy, holy. It's the only word that is used of God that is repeated like that all the time. You never read God is love, love, love. God is mighty, mighty, mighty. God is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Like you don't, but you read all the time, God is holy, holy, holy. Why is that? Why is that the one superlative of God that is repeated? Because in His holiness, everything else exists. Holiness means set apart, completely unique, 
unlike anything else, completely morally pure, like any creature created in this universe, he is he stands alone. And in his holiness, he is loving and almighty and merciful and glorious and on and on with all of the superlatives that we can throw down at the feet of God. But all of it starts with the fact that he is unique. He is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Katie, you can come up. And so there's this picture that we have. The throne room of God and all of creation is worshiping God. And all of the people are worshiping around creation, worshiping God, and everyone is declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when they recognize this complete holiness, it then they start to talk about His worthiness. And this is great because Worthy literally means worth-ship. To worship something is to ascribe worth to it. And so all of them, and all of us hopefully, are gathered around the throne of God and we are ascribing worth, saying, God, you are worthy of all value, of all praise, of all worship, of everything that we could possibly lay down, every crown that we have, every bit of pride and arrogance that we have, we bow down, we humble ourselves, and we give it all to you and say, God, you are worthy because you are holy. My hope is that we would be a church that worships God. That we see that he is holy, 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 and that we would say, God, we are going to lay down everything that we have. Every crown, every blessing, every gift and talent, anything that I have, I lay it down at your feet, God, because you are worthy of it. That we would declare alongside the angelic creatures that our minds can't even wrap our heads around and the elders that we don't fully understand, but we know they represent us somehow, that we would gather around them and that we would say, just like they do, worthy are you, O Lord, and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen?